0: Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiologist, and I'm a licensed nutritionist, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder.
1: And this is Phil Stevens. I run strength y'all. I'm a competitive powerlifter, Highland Games athlete, and all around superb man. Nice. This is Dr. Mike Nelson, faculty member of
2: the Kerrigan Institute, creator of the Flex Diet certification, and a bunch of other stuff.
0: Bunch of other stuff. Yeah.
2: Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I might be teaching for Georgia Southern University doing exercise fizz again in fall, assuming Ooh. they get enough students. <laughs> I take it that's online?
0: Yeah, it's online. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm actually in the process of converting some of my formerly in person courses to online. Uh, I used to do that primarily in the summer, but now, even during the school year, you know, even smaller universities are like we really need to jump into the online segment. As long as we know who we are, like not trying yeah. to pretend we're University of Phoenix or something. I don't know. Um, remember your niche, sort of thing. But yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, I'm going to go to a little quality matters rubric kind of thing that's going on in Cleveland here in a couple of weeks. I don't want to bore people though. But basically, there's you know, you don't just throw a bunch of stuff online and say here's a course. You know. There's, yeah. There's some considerations but
2: yeah of course we did for the Kerrig Institute we started that literally four years ago and taught the first module this year so that was an entire 300 credit course online but yeah it's not as easy as what people think it is
0: (laughs) no and when people hear something like oh my god it costs between several hundred and maybe four thousand dollars to take an online course I remind them it's like this is for university credit uh, bro, yeah. <laughs> you know, this isn't just a, a, a little workshop or something. And universities are, you know, that's that's why people take out loans, to go yeah. to school. Yeah. I mean, it's, it can be pricey anyway. Okay. Um, I have one listener mail that I would like to get to. It's a little bit of a loaded question, and I'm looking at you, Adam. Um, <laughs> I'm just joking with you, but we'll give you some good information here. Uh, and then I have two bits of news on grains grains are so controversial i think in the fitness world you know are they good are they bad cuz some people say oh whole grains so good for you and some people say grains are the devil you know avoid avoid them so i'll offer a little bit on that and then we're going to talk in our topic of the day everyone behind the scenes event prep um, from both uh, the muscle sports and strength sports perspective like phil's planning all the time doing these cool st- events uh, and then even from the scientific side, and Mike and I will chime in about how do we begin? Like if we're going to go do something, uh, what does it cost? Who do you talk to? How do you get this stuff moving? How do you actually get active in your field? So let's start with the uh, mail again from Adam. He says, hello, my mother-in-law is in her 60s and has osteoporosis. She's thinking of starting to do resistance training. Uh, But it's a little apprehensive about high protein and heavy weightlifting, especially since her doctor recommended the opposite. I've tried to find solid research on this topic, but I have found that the Internet and podcast world is very limited. I've been listening to Iron Radio for over eight years uh, now, and I do not recall if you've directly discussed this issue. I'd like to refer her to specialists on the topic because I'm pretty sure she doesn't think her meathead son-in-law knows more than her doctor. (laughs) A- any info would be greatly appreciated, Adam. Uh, well, the reason this is loaded, Adam, partly is because, A, we're not physicians, and you really should get medical clearance for her. If the doctor isn't willing to have her do anything, he should have a good reason for it, though. Um, screening techniques, there are several, and I'm going to get to this uh, now. I did pull a paper for you. Uh, to emphasize one thing, this is only one paper. This is a 2011 um, review of the literature from uh, Applied Physiology, Nutrition, and Metabolism. But I, again, I want you to know, looking in the podcast world is not where you look. And I think you understand this, right? So we are not the reference. We are just going to point you to some guidelines and recommendations. There are recommendations for exercising with various special populations, we were just talking about university courses. Special POPs courses are part of most curricula uh, in exercise science, and that could be anything from arthritis to osteoporosis to cardiovascular disease. You know, um, What you are going to hear from all three of us probably is in the right hands, in professional hands, a lot of rehab and even prevention and maintenance types of things are more aggressive than they used to be. Right? And so it may be the case, maybe, that the physician involved here is just maybe a little old school and erring on the side of conservatism and and whatnot. So let me share a couple of things from this review paper. This is from Chilibeck and colleagues. Uh, Again, Applied Physiology, Nutrition, Metabolism 2011. There are probably more modern guidelines, but these are pretty solid and they will point you to some of the right. Um, Keywords that you might be looking for uh, Evidence-based risk assessment And recommendations for physical activity uh, Arthritis, osteoporosis, and low back pain So as far as the beginning here It just says We systematically reviewed the safety of physical activity For people with arthritis, osteoporosis, and low back pain 111 articles met our inclusion criteria um, The incidence for adverse events for physical activity in these populations was 3.4 to 11%. So just as far as the risk of getting involved with physical activity, um, serious events was 0.06 to 2.4%. So, And then they made some recommendations, which I will get to in just a minute. It says our main recommendations are that arthritic patients with highly progressed forms of disease... I know that's not your situation here, Adam, but should be to avoid heavy load-bearing activities. I'm actually struggling with a little bit of that myself these days, Um, but should participate in non-weight-bearing activities. Uh, It says patients with osteoporosis, here we go, should avoid trunk flexion and powerful twisting of the trunk. And that's based on studies where they would engage people with known osteoporosis, Maybe in a treatment or a rehab program of some kind. And if they did aggressive trunk flexion, so bending forward, right, with the trunk, um, curving your spine forward, caused some fractures. So that's a little scary. Um, It says patients with stable osteoporosis or low back pain can safely perform a variety of progressive aerobic or resistance training. So if I just kind of give you some extras here. In the intro, it says osteoporosis is a systemic... Skeletal disorder characterized by low bone mass uh, and microarchitectural corrosion of bone, resulting in increased risk of fracture. And that's according to the World Health Organization. Uh, bone mineral density is often used. They use uh, DEXA, right? Bone scanners. DEXA is not just for body fat and body comp in other ways, but also for bone density. There's ultrasound bone density devices, but essentially it says a bone mineral density T score. That is the standard deviation units that your bone mineral density differs from the young adult mean. Uh, And at the femoral neck, they often look, lumbar spine, femoral neck, right in the hip. That's one of the things they look at to get your T-score. If the patient has suffered a fragility fracture after age 40 or has recently used glucocorticoid therapy for three months, then the patient is moved up one risk category. Because, again, some of those corticoids... Uh, used for anti-inflammatory reasons, but they can be rather hard on your bones. So as as far as the T-score, though, it goes on to say, the World Health Organization defines osteoporosis (laughs) as a bone density, 2.5 standard deviation units below the mean for young adults of the same gender. And then it says osteopenia, so we're talking about, like, progression toward osteoporosis, is a condition where bone mineral density is low enough to cause a significant increase in fracture... And it's defined under older guidelines as a bone mineral density 1.0 standard deviation below the young adult mean. So, again, they use those T-scores from something like a DEXA. Uh, and if you're that far below, uh, then, you know, you are at risk. So as far as their evidence goes here, this is a massive paper, so I'm just sort of selecting some of this. Evidence-based absolute and relative contraindications to physical activity and a decision tree for patients with osteoporosis. Now, I'm not going to talk through the whole decision tree, uh, but you could go look this up. This is free. If you were to go to PubMed, right, um, and simply look up um, Chilibeck, C-H-I-L-I-B-E-C-K, uh, Evidence-Based Risk Assessment Recommendations for Osteoporosis. Um, then you can find this, what I'm talking about here. It says most studies of exercise and osteoporosis reported few, mostly minor, adverse events such as muscle soreness or general pain. We suggest, again, absolute contraindication for osteoporotic patients would be trunk flexion exercises. It says they should simply not be prescribed uh, to patients with osteoporosis that are at a high risk of fracture. And, again, that's something a physician's going to have to figure out using... Evidence, I would hope, T-scores from a DEXA or an ultrasound device or something like that. It says extension exercises appear to be safe. And then they talk about several different studies in this paper. Um, it says, from the collective results of these studies, we recommend progressive resistance training or aggressive weight-bearing exercise. And they're going to define that literally as something as simple as stair climbing or sit to stand. So they don't mean heavy squatting necessarily here. Um, but progressive resistance type stuff like that should not be started until at least 24 days after uh, surgical rehab. It says the current uh, par med X. So some of these screening tools to make sure it's safe to exercise that a physician might use or an exercise physiologist might use. The current par med X advises osteoporotic patients to avoid exercises such as push-ups, curl-ups, vertical jump, and trunk forward flexion. Uh, and to engage in low-impact weight-bearing activities and resistance training. So, again, lower-impact resist- progressive resistance training. Um, they say the only study they found that there was an issue with push-ups um, did not result in fracture. Uh, they said the vertical jumping, it's not necessarily the jumping itself that may cause the fracture, but the risk of fall uh, if you do that sort of thing. Uh, We would therefore recommend that these types of physical activity be done under close supervision to avoid falls. Progressive high-intensity resistance training, likewise, appears to be safe for osteopenic or osteoporotic women. Uh, And again, they go on with various uh, recommendations here. Basically, get screened by a medical professional. Use caution. Have a spotter. uh, You know, that sort of thing. Avoid the real high impact, especially out of the gate. Avoid the you know powerful twisting movements and that sort of thing. And they provide a decision tree, like literally a little alg- yes-no algorithm here. And again, you can find that on uh, – just Google the term PubMed and look for that, Chilibeck and colleagues, uh, when it comes to safe exercise for osteoporotics. Uh, Mike, do you do any kind of special pop stuff in your classes? I'm, I'm guessing you might.
2: Um, I did in the past, yeah. We did some in – yeah, pretty much. The, it's the catch twenty two because the, the things that we know from the literature are helpful, are also the things that people become more intolerant to over time. So, as you mentioned, you got to make sure to start them on a very slow, you know, progressive movement on that. But I would agree that saying that you know X or Y or you can never lift again is usually not the most accurate thing but again they have to clear that with their you know physician and usually then i have them sometimes you know politely push back on their physician and say you know if they did do this how could they be able to do it you know what is the safer way to do it and so a lot of physicians are don't you know know too much of where they're going to send them to and they don't want you know bob to put 200 pounds on ethel's back and have something bad happen so
0: right yeah and you know we should also point out too a lot of this there's a there's plenty of background information when a physician makes a referral and then that physical therapist or exercise phys, phys person can work with the patient because, I mean, vitamin D intake, estrogen replacement yeah. therapy. Oh, my goodness. There's a lot of other things that would come into play. Um, I can tell you back in the early 90s when I was in San Diego, we were doing a project. We were trying to reverse osteoporosis or and osteopenia in Old to very old women, and we were doing all kinds of things, and really starting to realize how site specific it was. You know, like we weren't getting a lot of bone density changes in their lower back. So they're like, "What do you think, Lonnie? You're a bodybuilder, and so because I would lift with these older ladies, and they were getting freakishly strong for older ladies. I mean, it's it's crazy to watch like an 80 year old woman do toe push-ups. You know what I mean? Or or pull downs with several plates on the on the stack, and you're like, hell yeah. Um, but we were doing some like cable rows, you know, seated pulley rows, that sort of thing to try to target certain areas cautiously, I guess. Now that, w- that could be risky though, cause there's some trunk flexion there- going on there. But, um, anyway, yeah, I- again, that's why I said this is sort of loaded Adam, right? This- we're trying to give you some information, but the huge disclaimer is we're not physicians and we're not going to tell your mom, just go start. Uh, you know, powerlifting unsupervised. Um, Phil, when you work with a client like this, an older lady, um, do you always just say, listen, I need physician's clearance? Or do you kind of screen them in some way? Or how do you handle this stuff?
1: Adam asked this question on the Facebook group, so I already addressed it there. But um, Oh, okay. <laughs> basically, I told him, yeah, I mean, you want to get physician's clearance. Find out what you're dealing with. I do that with any injury. It's like, okay, what am I dealing with? And I constantly check up with my people. Okay, what's your doctor saying now? Um, but it's it start off slower like anybody should, but start off lower than you think you probably even should. Like I had a, a, a lady that was 72, I think it was at the time, came in with osteoporosis and started working with us. And literally day one was walking the distance of her block and back. Okay, once that was easy, okay, two blocks. And then slowly worked into resistance training, and so it just depends on where she's at, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, depends on what her what is tough for her, and we got to grow that, grow her margins. But yeah, I and mean, just slowly, methodically work up. And you know, this lady ended up, you know, sometime later, competing in powerlifting, breaking records, and climbing mountains with her grandkids. So I mean, it's doable, but you got to be careful. So it's just take it slow man cuz anything is better than the nothing she's doing now yeah so you don't want to go from from all the nothing and then he he wrote and said they they're, they're going to go check out a crossfit gym that next day and I was like that's fine but be careful <laughs> you <know? Yeah. laughs> because you don't want to throw her into the okay it's time to wad you yeah right. yeah uh, so it highly depends on what coach especially in that uh, not that I'm bashing crossfit but um you know that business structure they pretty much has no control over the affiliates. There's no quality control. So, though there, I know some great coaches in that, in that business, uh, I've seen a lot of bad ones. So, right. I was like, go with her and just interview the people. See what they're going to do. You know, and do that with any coach. Not just CrossFit. Yeah. I was like, what, what are you going to do with my mom? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Because she has this going on. If it sounds bad, probably leave. You know, well, minimally, so. they
0: really they've got to do some type of screening. You know, the yeah. uh, the a parq, parmedx, um, some type of health history form. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and they really need to be educated in this stuff in one way or the other, or following a referral. Yeah, I, I can't imagine someone doing this ballistic stuff that you might see people oh. just doing in a CrossFit gym, just bouncing and pounding yeah, and like, kind of twisting. And oh, god, this would not be good in this situation. Right.
1: Yeah, so. the, the scariest one I've worked with. And I worked with a little girl for about a year. I can't recall the name of the the disease. But pretty much any time she got tissue damage, um, that damage would calcify. Oh, oh. yeah. Oh, talk about scary. Because, I mean, basically, if we did a hard squat workout that caused muscle damage that would be good for somebody else, it would make little tiny little bone fragments (laughs) inside of her muscle. Yeah. So, basically, we had to do things that would not, okay, we got to get you stronger so you can walk good, but we can't cause any, you know, hypertrophy. We can't cause any tissue damage that will make your muscles bigger um, because then I'm just hurting you more. Yeah. Oh. So, yeah, you got to deal with what you're dealing with and take it slow. I mean, people people tend to want things right now. And that's not the way to go most of the time, even with healthy people. So,
0: right. Yeah. Back in the early 90s, it was very controversial whether or not you could even reverse um, Mm -hmm. the osteoporosis, you know, without something like a hormone replacement or, you know, and or vitamin D and calcium and and and. And so I don't. I haven't been up on that literature about how reversible these sorts of things are, knowing how adaptable the human body is, you know, but again, hormones underwrite tissue mass. Yeah. And so when sex hormones are much lower, like you see in a postmenopausal lady, you can't expect them to have the same kind of responses, you know, in yeah. progressions as younger people. And again, this is medicine. And that's why I said it was a loaded question. We're just yeah. giving you some info here, Adam, right? Um, Because you really got to go – if you don't like what the doctor is saying, then go to a more progressive doctor, right? Yeah. Get another
1: opinion. I mean, the point you gave is great. I mean, if this was my mom, we would take a holistic approach. You know, yes, the physical training plus, but also, you know, where are the hormones at? Where's this at? Where's your vitamin D at? It's going to – your diet. All of it's going to be addressed. Yeah. yeah. You can't just expect her, okay, mom, keep doing what you're doing, and we're going to train hard. Right. You know, you need to check everything out because that's not going to fix – some of the underlying issues. That's so. right.
0: And he did mention protein. I can only tell you, Adam, my research on protein suggests that it, it actually, if anything, helps bone density. It certainly yeah. doesn't harm it. And I'm not winning a Nobel Prize. Beth, Beth Dawson-Hughes, uh, I think uh, Lehman did some of that stuff. Other people have looked at high-protein diet, you know, side effects, including bone loss, and really not found it to be there, especially if you're resistance training. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Having said that, I haven't looked at data specifically in old people, um, but I'm highly doubting. In fact, I'm actually concerned that cutting back protein, because some people think (coughs) it hurts bone loss, again, with an uninformed uh, health practitioner or whatever, cutting back on it because you think it hurts bone density, I, I think would actually be detrimental. Now, does she have to eat a gram per pound? Maybe not. Right, I mean, so just keep in mind that the younger people performance-type category stuff, sometimes it has to get modified in these special populations and with older people.
2: Yeah, and the acute data we have from dosing shows that the dosing acute leak is almost twice as much. So a study that compared 20-year-olds to 71-year-olds found that 20-year-olds got the same acute response as 20 grams. Older people needed about 40 grams in terms of a you know, looking at muscle protein synthesis on the short-term scale.
0: Right. Yeah. Anabolic resistance sort of thing. Right. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, there's enough of that for our listeners who are like, well, my mom's not osteoporotic or I'm just mm. here for me. Okay. Well, we're going to move on here quickly. Uh, like <laughs> this, this last two tidbits, these are both from the Institute of Food Technologists. Strength and Muscle Sport News. Uh, And this may infuriate you if you are um, anti-grain. I'm not really anti-most foods, to be honest. But this is called Grains Rain. Now, bear with me. Remember, this is from the food technologist. So these guys think about the the behind-the-scenes in the food industry. It says, whole grains are extremely beneficial to our health, says uh, Allie Webster, Associate Director of Nutrition Communications for the International Food Information Council Foundation. Eating a few servings of whole grains every day is associated with lower risk of heart disease, lower obesity, lower type 2 diabetes, and lower uh, types of some types of cancer, primarily colorectal cancer. Uh, It says it's not just the fiber, vitamins, antioxidants, and other nutrients in the grains, uh, particularly in their whole form, that has led product developers to formulate with these whole grains. And again, remember, food technologists and formulators Make your food. Your food's not just grown, folks. It's made. Each grain variety has a unique color, flavor, and texture. And grain ingredients often impart functionalities to product formulations. Uh, This is interesting to a lot of chefs lately. And, Mike, you and I have talked about how plant proteins are gaining popularity. Um, But this concept of flipping the plate, they call it which is to make the non-meat offering the center of the plate rather than the meat. That's hard for me to say. (laughs) 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 But that's what they want to do, is make the Mm. the non-meat offering the center of the plate. Um, It says, uh, and that was said by Julie Miller-Jones, Professor Emeritus of Food and Nutrition at St. Catherine University and a member of the Scientific Advisory Board for the Grain Foods Foundation. That last part, I think, is significant. Uh, And then it goes on to say, while rice, wheat, barley, corn, and oat have remained the top five grain ingredients used in global new product launches between 2014 and 2018, the so-called ancient grain category is posting strong growth, uh, including chia seeds, uh, quinoa, and spelt. So... My perspective on this oftentimes is plants are also typically cheaper <laughs> than, than meat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so that, that's one of the reasons they, they love to pursue these things, because imagine the price point point, you know, and the margins that you get when you work with something that's just cheaper. Mm-hmm. So uh, I once had a, a debate with a friend of mine, an, another exercise physiologist, just a friendly conversation about – he said, well, why would anybody eat grains? Like, I would just get my carbs from starchy vegetables. You know, I, I, you could get those in other things. And I'm like, well, I, my thought would be that there could be these, you know, not just things like soluble fiber in the oatmeal helping to lower your bad cholesterol or something like that, your LDL, but phytochemicals that might be unique to some of these different grains. I'm just a fran- uh, fan of variety sort of in general. This leads to the second one that might be a little more interesting. And, again, just kind of setting this. This is also from the Institute of Food Technologists this month. Rice cultivar bread for high protein content. So instead of just uh, the typical, you know, you might get two or three grams of protein in a serving of a lot of these grains, this is uh, much higher. So it says, um, let's see. Access to meat and other sources of protein is limited by availability or cost. Well, see, we just said that. Spurred by the prospect of helping to alleviate a worldwide malnutrition problem, Louisiana State University professor Harry Utomo, U-T-O-M-O, and his team of researchers developed a high-protein rice cultivar. Uh, This is 10.6% protein, apparently. Uh, The development of high-protein rice began first by inducing genetic changes, that were obtained through mutational breeding, says Utomo. And he says this is a traditional breeding technique, but still, they identify the mutants, right, the ones that are really higher protein in the lineup. And then out of many candidates, says Utomo, we selected one high-protein line with excellent grain characteristics, etc. Um, it says rice is one of the most important cereals that is naturally gluten-free, highly digestible, and hypoallergenic, and then that's a good thing, right? People are always concerned about gluten and wheat products. Our last year's data suggests that an increase in protein content has also changed the rice's baking quality in a favorable way. This is something that allows rice to be used as a substitute for wheat flour. Uh, And I guess the next phase is um, to increase the grain protein content even further up to 12.5%. So that'll be interesting, and it's the kind of thing most people might not think about, right? We think, oh, protein, good, bring it. More protein in the grain. I like it. Uh, But you also have to think about you could do certain things with wheat flour, right? Anybody who makes biscuits or pancakes or that kind of thing, you know that if you do that with traditional wheat flour, the end product is really quite different than if you use rice flour, for example. And these higher rice ones, instead of the protein being gluten like it might be in the wheat, it's not the same thing. But it's still protein, and it can make your stuff, you know, have a nice structure to it. So, Mike, in your household, you guys at least partly avoid gluten, don't you?
2: Yeah, my wife doesn't handle gluten all that well. I mean, she's not celiac or anything, but whenever we kind of run the experiment, gluten doesn't react too well with her. So, in the morning, if we make a smoothie, we tend to use rice protein, which is pretty good. I mean, if you use 40 grams, it's kind of more of a semi. Complete protein. I don't think it tastes too bad. Some of the pea proteins I think are just god awful, mm-hmm. but they're they're better than they used to be like ten years ago. I remember we were at a I guess one of your conferences, Phil, we had a sample yeah, yeah, it was bad. of pea protein and Cassandra <laughs> Forsyth was there and we're sitting around and we're like, Hey, let's try this new protein. Oh, pea protein, all right. And all of us were like, Oh my god, this is horrible. Yeah, it was bad. <laughs> it was really bad. Um, so yeah. We do use a fair amount of rice. We got a little small rice cooker off of amazon that works really well so
0: yeah yeah so listeners look for high protein rice right it might it's a kind of thing where i eat, if i eat just rice as the grain i, I always think carb source i it, the protein yeah. doesn't even register with me really no. uh, so it'd be neat to know that hey you know i'm actually getting some protein here when i'm throwing this carb into my
2: meal <laughs> you know and do they have to say that that's probably not a gmo then because I know a lot of the big corporations have gone to more they they say selective breeding process so that they don't have to say that it's a GMO which <laughs> might technically be correct.
0: <laughs> I know, right? Yeah, this is traditional breeding techniques. So right, right. I mean, I think they're trying to get at that let's let's just quash that paranoia right now. You know, we, this was done in, in more traditional ways, and then we just selected the offspring that ha- were in their words, mutant, right, that were higher yeah. um, higher than average um, protein producers. I mean, it's like selective breeding of dogs. You know, how do you end yeah. up with a chihuahua yeah. versus a mastiff, you know, mm-hmm. um, selective breeding. So anyway, I just thought that my, that was kind of neat, too, especially there's, there's so many people down on the wheat products and the gluten. And I think that can be so confusing to people, too, right, because a lot of people are avoiding gluten, Either because they should, or just don't know any better, and you know don't understand, so they just default to avoid it. And then you go to the low carb section of a lot of uh, grocery stores or health markets, and the low carb stuff is purposely full of gluten. You know, it's higher protein, lower carb, and the protein is gluten. So it, yeah. it is interesting to see that there could be some of these other greens coming down the the pike with more protein in them, and, and you don't have to worry about the gluten thing. Yeah,
2: and I wrote a study recently that uh, way. Uh was a, what was it? Actually, a wheat hydrolysate. And you needed 60 grams of that to compare to 40 grams of rice and 20 grams of whey. I thought it was interesting that they're trying to make basically enzymatically digested concentrated proteins from wheat, even.
0: Yeah. yeah. I saw a tweet, something about, um, was it corn protein? Is actually fairly high quality, which surprised me. Because my <laughs> understanding is that plant proteins are going to be missing one or more of the you know indispensable amino acids that's just a yeah. standard teacher in me um i suppose if you get
2: the overall dose high enough you're going to bring up the dose of all the ones that were small enough before in a normal serving so it may even out over yeah I, yeah
0: okay all right well let's Time go to now. break yeah we're halfway in so we'll go to break we're gonna come back and we're gonna discuss behind the scenes event prep whether it's uh strength event, you know, for the public, or whether it's a scientific event, how do we go about it? Hey, listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead All that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, There is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC press and protein and Lowry. You can just Google that. And, uh, I do full disclosure. I do make a small single digit uh, royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go.
2: Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio?
0: All right, everyone, we're back. It's Phil and Mike and Lonnie, and we're going to talk about behind-the-scenes event prep uh, in both strength sports and the sciences. Like, how do we do what we do? And if you would want to consider these things yourself. So the first question I'll have for you, Phil, is Mm -hmm. um, how do you begin? Like, you've ran several events. You're working on the big thing with Jim Wendler this Mm -hmm. summer. How do you start?
1: Oh, number one is the concept. I mean, of course. So what do you want to throw? And you need to get something together that's, you know, hopefully going to attract people. Like this one with windler has been about, geez, more than five years in the making. So, and the biggest part of that was just getting Windler to come out of his cave. So he <laughs> <laughs> yeah. to, yeah. to come out of his house um, was the biggest thing on there. But in that, that's also the concept. That's a lot of the big draw like Windler has, he, he went up to Swiss, but other than that, he doesn't come out much. So this is a chance for people to, you know, see a Sasquatch out of its national <laughs> environment. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so that's part of the big draw, you know, as far as I know, he hadn't done like a public seminar since the one I went to 10 years ago. Um, So that's number one is just figuring out your concept. Number two is, you know, timeline. Generally, we're rushing this thing because I got the okay, and I was like, okay, let's do this before you can back out. Uh, (laughs) So, and I booked hotels and everything for them. Uh, Normally, I'd like like to have a year, a year out Um, because it takes a lot more planning than you think it should. Yes. Um, And just think everything takes time. You know, luckily, we've done enough of these, and Mm -hmm. I have a big enough venue, so that tore some of the time down. So we're just throwing it at my place, um, so that that brought our timetable down a little bit. But I got and then getting involved with people get help that will that is solid and reliable. That's a hard one. Um, I've dealt with events where uh, some of the help wasn't, and then what happens is it falls down on you or some others, and then there's you know, uh, I don't know you, you get a little angry at each other. So. Number one's a good concept, and then getting people, and then just realizing the work you're going to need to do, it's probably twice that. <laughs> it's going to be twice as much as you really think. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, that, the timeline,
0: timeline idea, that's solid gold, right? A year timeline is really, really important. Because you've got you to get the word out. You've got to coordinate all these you know, partners, and we'll get to that. Um, but, yeah, I love yeah. the timeline <laughs> thing. Like literally an arrow across a page with some dates on it. Right.
1: Yeah. I mean, to pull off what I pulled off in a few weeks, I'm not tooting my own horn now here, but it's I'm just speaking reality. I, I have more strings to pull than the average person. So yeah, yeah. I mean, getting these other people involved, it was a lot quicker for me than it would be the average person. So we were able to pull this together in a in a very timely fashion and get some sponsors behind it and things like that. Um, and but I'll tell you this, I mean, this is the first annual. The planning for the second annual. We'll begin about two weeks after this one's thrown. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> oh, that's right. when we say, okay, yes. let's start planning number two. And then the next one, we'll really be able to push it up, and that's the plan. Let's let's, let's push the next one big. We knew we, we wanted to go big with this one, but we knew we had to keep keep it in scope of our timeline. So, Right.
0: Now, uh, Mike, Phil mentioned um, being able to have resources and pull the strings. And obviously, a lot of that stuff happens in the sciences, too, uh, You know, people you know, data that you have, (laughs) whatever it might be. Uh, But you speak a lot, right? So how does that begin? Does someone just get a hold of you? Do you um, pitch an idea? I thought it might be fun for listeners to hear from you. Yeah, yeah.
2: Um, It just depends on the events, you know. Like some of the events, like um, the Fitness Summit, I went to it the first year. Um, I had met, let's see, Lou Schuler. I think was it was right around that same time at the 2011 ISSN that you were there at. Uh, we hung out afterwards and stuff. And I just ended up going to the event. So I'm like, hey, it looks like a fun event. Talked to, you know, Nick Bronberg, the organizer afterwards. I didn't even know Lou was involved with it at that point, to be honest. Um, and just said, hey, you know, if you're looking for presenters next year, let me know. And he's like, oh, OK, you know, what do you do? And. He's like, oh, well, we, we might let you know. And so he went and talked to Lou. He's like, oh, yeah, I saw him speak at, you know, ISSN, so he can kind of vouch for you, that type of thing. And, yeah, I've done that like, six times. I'll be there again this year. Um, so for those types of events, it's you know also helps if you know the people. Like I know the organizers of Paleo effects so I usually get an invite back to that one each year, although they are trying to coordinate the a huge event with tons of people, so you never know. And, you know, newer stuff is usually just a referral. So I got a referral from a buddy of mine that I worked with uh, to do an event in Canada this past year in Vancouver, which was a new organization. And that had some pros and cons associated with presenting with new organizations, especially when you're doing nutrition information to an organization that typically only does exercise presentation, especially more to clinicians. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that, and come back to that. Um, that's usually through people that I know and I've done a few things. We just tested them out at my house here and that was just calling old clients and be like, Hey, here's the concept. You know, here's the date. You know, does it sound like something you would be interested in? And that was easier to kind of leverage those relationships that I already had. And, yeah, so it's I don't personally do a lot of cold calling or that type of thing. I I think it can work, but the other downside too, and I'm sure you guys get this too, is that you know, certain people in the industry will ask you to be like, Oh, I saw you spoke at such and such. How do I speak there? And you're kinda of thinking there's some people you know and you've seen them speak, you're like, Yeah, it's no problem, I'll introduce you. There's other people where you're like I've never seen you speak once. I'm not really sure how that's going to go. And if I recommend you, man, my ass is on the hook if it doesn't turn out yeah. well. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's always a really awkward spot to be in.
0: <laughs> yeah, that doesn't help anybody,
2: right? If you endorse someone and... and right.
0: <laughs> yeah, that doesn't help anybody, including the person asking. Yeah. Oh,
2: totally, 100%. Yeah, because if they don't do well and it's a big event, oh, that's not going to bode well for
0: them either. Yeah, so. bad experience. Um. Uh, to Phil's point about a year in advance and literally weeks after an event, you, if you're, if it's going to be annual, you're back at it for the next one. Uh, I felt quite a bit of that. We do a continuing education credit thing where we actually have to apply to s- different state boards. Like if we're going to do a conference, like a fundraiser kind of conference, and we do it, we want to give um, nurses, right, the nursing attendees, continuing education credits. We actually have to work through state board through paperwork and applications and sometimes yep. fees, and it takes months, and <laughs> and it's inconsistent. Sometimes a very oh, rigorous yeah. group will say, we love what you're doing, you're approved, and then sometimes much lower-level groups won't understand what you're doing, or they're so insular, they don't want other people doing their thing, almost like you're saying, Mike, with... Nutrition in exercise settings or or something like that. And you might have a group of, and I'm not saying this is the case here, but you might have athletic trainers or nurses or someone else say, Mike, Lonnie, you're not an athletic trainer or a nurse, so you can't teach nutrition. And you're like, wait what? <laughs> like the terminal degree should matter, shouldn't it? Or, you know, the license to practice or something, but you never know what you're going to get. So then you're back and forth and it just eats up so much time just to make it worthwhile for the people in the crowd, right? Because they want to get credits for being there. It's, it's, it's sort of a racket, isn't it? The whole continuing education thing. On one side, they want to keep people up, up to speed and abreast of recent findings. But on the other side, it's also an industry in itself, right? That once... Once you've got a certificate or a license in certain things, no wonder people get salty and just sort of start to issue some of these because you can only really afford to be a member of so many groups. It's not just about your credential. It's about how much of this you know, um, continuing education and, and membership fees and things like that you could even afford. Anyway, so you go back and forth with that kind of thing. Obviously, if you're going to present data – it starts with the concept, like Phil was saying, you know, it might be a particular hypothesis because the literature has a hole in it. We don't know, for example, how women might respond uh, to coffee in a pre-exercise setting or something like that. So th- the hypothesis then becomes a human subjects review form, and that can be large, and you can have to go back and forth and get approval to even test anything on people, right, especially in nutrition and exercise settings. And obviously you've got to have data. If you're if you're going to present something that starts in a very unglamorous way, uh, with clipboards down in a lab, you know where you're actually feeding people the coffee, you're taking measurements on them of whatever type, uh, you know then you have to analyze the data and all that sort of thing. But I always tell students, you know, listen, data collection itself is very unglamorous. You know, you have visions oh, yeah. of, you, visions of being under a spotlight on a, behind a podium in Europe, <laughs> but that's not how this begins. And sometimes that data collection really doesn't pan out too much either, right? So you, the whole process sort of ends at that clipboard unglamorous stage down in the lab. Because you're like, well, there's nothing happening here. We're not going to keep wasting neurons on this. You know.
2: So. Yeah, I spent a year and a half doing a project with the epidemiologic department at the University of Minnesota all to find that, uh, yeah, we're not going to publish it. So, oh, they're a year and a half of my life. <laughs> yeah,
0: yep. and that's the stuff that people, they, they don't see that, right? That's the yeah. unglamorous side for sure. Let's go back to Phil then. I, I have a couple of different questions here about these events. So on the strength and muscle sport events, uh, what about hidden costs? Things that need bought that oh. you have to consider? I mean, maybe even just the highlights. I know there's probably a million.
1: Gosh. Well, I mean, equipment. Is number one. So first you're thinking about, okay, I don't know, say you're doing a power lift me. Okay, we need a monolift or a squat rack. We need a bench. And we need deadlift. Okay, now how about the 70 people that are going to be warming up? So we need that times like six. (laughs) Yeah, multiply. So all that adds up. Um, Restrooms is a big one that people mess up on. You don't want 200 people to show up and have one toilet. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah! Um, oh yeah! Things like that. Uh, yeah. Food, water, um, just enough space in general—a big enough venue—and that's why, like with this event, for instance, we decided to do spectator tickets ahead of time because then we could cap it. Yep. And you know, then we can run out of space and uh, just say no more because we know we, we're limited on two things: we're limited on space. Got pretty good space, but we're limited on parking. So um, I can't have six thousand people show up. You know, even though that'd be amazing, but, and then we also did it. So if we needed to, let's say it sold out really fast, spectator wise, okay, let's scramble. It's time to scramble and get a bigger venue. Um, So that, um, geez, Uh just flights, hotels, food, you know, for everybody that's coming. If you're flying people in, all that adds up, um, picking them up from airports, things like that. So right. everything generally costs more than you think it's going to. And it takes more time than it should, <laughs> so I mean, just start multiplying things up. You know, write down on your paper and get ready to to add to that. Right. So,
0: we even yeah. were thinking about things like um, honorariums or little gifts for the speakers. You know, we'll get them mugs or shirts or some little thank you because some of these these people they're doing it essentially for free. They're doing it because <laughs> you know them or you're in a network of some kind of together. You know what I mean? You're trying to toss them some kind of gratitude. But, Phil, you said something real quick I just wanted to touch on about um, doing things ahead of time. Uh, I've seen a lot of people do stuff on Kickstarter. Um, they'll actually assess the interest in an event because if it doesn't get funded, it doesn't go. Right. So they try to get the word out, and they do a Kickstarter where people literally will pitch in money. Hey, yeah, I'd like this to happen. And it's an interesting concept, right? Instead of doing it because you have a product to release, they're actually doing event uh, pre-prep on Kickstarter. And I thought that was kind of cool.
2: Yeah. Another part, too, that you said, especially if you're trying to get people to come initially who are you know bigger names and bigger draws, whatever area that's in, you probably want to make sure that everything goes pretty smooth for them. Yes. I'm sure we've all done events where it's like, uh... Oh, wait a minute. I thought you were booking the hotel. They're like, no, you booked your own. We'll reimburse you. Oh, the hotel now is sold out. Oh, wait, you're going to pick me up. There's nobody here. Oh, no, we forgot about you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. You have like the greatest taste in your mouth to come
1: back again. <laughs> no, and it's also that. I mean, if you plan on throwing an event that has big names, you make sure it's a really well-ran event. Yes. <laughs> you know, if you're just throwing a meet, you know, the backyard party for me, it doesn't matter. But you yeah. start having big names there. Okay, this thing we got to have all our nuts tightened, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because we want this to happen again. And it's it, it speaks on them, like with me when putting his name on this. Um, we've got Matt Vincent. Hey, Brain Goods. So all these people are like, okay, yeah, we're coming. We're going to support you. Okay, this thing has to be tip top. Yeah, so,
0: yeah, <clears throat> yeah. Right down to having a staff. You know, even for yeah. our little like yep. continuing education credit events and stuff like that. Who's going to work the registration desk? Who's going to have walk around and usher things or, or have bottles of water or, like you were saying, drive the car to go pick up Mike from the airport? You know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yep. It, it can be nerve-wracking, and you've really got to sit down and think about all this stuff way in advance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And then if
2: you have people flying in, when do they get in? Their flight is probably going to change. There might be some weird thing with that, and then, if, mm-hmm. you know, just – Thinking about that ahead of time, because if you've got some people who can only fly in at the last minute, something happens to their flights. You know, no fault of theirs, and then you're you're kind of hosed. Yeah.
0: You know, with, with yep. the with again with the I sound like a broken record, but instead of just like uh, participating and sharing a poster or a podium talk at a professional event, if you're organizing one, you know, before you even I was actually remiss talk about Phil and his timeline and multiplying things before you even approach. A state board to get approval to be an official education provider, you've got to land people in your network, get them to agree, and get their resume, uh, their vita, all this stuff in place because the uh, approving body of some state board or national group, they're going to want to see the credentials of these people. Uh, and you, it could take, and a bio, you, you got to get all this information extracted. And if they're your buddies and they're people you know, you know, it might take extra prodding. It's one thing to ask someone you don't know in, uh, at professional arm's length, hey, I need your bio, I need this and this. But sometimes if it's just one of your buddies, you, you know, <laughs> you're literally on your phone texting, hey, bro, still don't have your bio, you know, yeah. need your resume. Yeah. Because uh, I can't even approach the state boards until I have some yeah. documentation of who the hell you are, <laughs> right?
1: Yeah. So.
2: yeah. And I have one that got kicked back to Amanda in a presentation in fall. And the organizer is awesome. She, you know, She's on top of everything. And we submitted everything. And we'll just say one fitness organization approved it. And a sort of generally lower-ranked one did not. And mm-hmm. so we went back to him again. I said, "Okay, here's all the added information. Here's everything else. Here's the CV." And they said, "No, we think you can't talk about you know nutrition. This is a scope of practice. We need to see your completed slide deck. You need to do a call with us." And I'm like, "The talks yep. not for six months. I don't have 100% of the slide deck
0: done. <laughs> you right, know, right, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, a lot so of pre work, yeah." All right, one last one, because we already talked quite a bit about partnering with whom and, and that sort of thing. Uh, this might be a hard one. Uh, so, Phil, what what's your ultimate goal or outcome? <laughs> I know these these are going to differ, like you said, like a backyard powerlifting meet versus a big event. But what yeah. about in June? What What's the ultimate target?
1: Well, I can tell you the number one thing is... Let's throw something that's amazing and not lose too much money. That's number uh, yeah. one. That's that's good. honestly number one with all the events. Like with any seminar I throw, anything like that, it's like I'm going to see what I can do and not lose much money. Um, if I can break even, that's usually a pretty good goal is what we try to do with seminars and things. Um, but like when I bring somebody in for a seminar, it's, I try and treat them well um, because that's how I want to be treated. So uh, if you're coming into this thinking, oh, we're going to make tons of money then mm-hmm. you're coming in for the wrong reason. It's probably not going to happen. Now, in June, you know, it's to it's the first inaugural event. Basically, what we're trying to do is create something that's pretty amazing um, and just have a, a real good time and grow this into something greater. So we're expecting to lose money. I mean, we're putting up uh, – Jim's putting up $7,000 right off the bat just to the winners. It's the first and second place. Wow. So, nice. Yeah. So, I mean, but in in and of itself, we know that draws people too. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, we're looking to minimize the losses and create an awesome thing that then we can grow in later years. And the thing with growing is then, you know, your work's going to get greater. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, the number one goal is not try not to lose too much unless there's something pretty amazing. So.
0: Yeah. And you know what? I like what you said about even if you lose money. A lot of businesses are like that, right? The first several years oh, yeah. are losing, investing yeah. proposition until you build an annual reputation, or you build it into something that is profitable. To, th- to think that anything's going to be profitable out of the gate is sort of naive, I think. Yes, you know, yes. Not that it never happens, but uh, mm. yeah, that seems. naive.
2: Yeah. but I just think of all the potential things you could do for profit, and especially like you running a seminar there, Phil. Like I think the. Just the basic economics of it are highly stacked against you, and yes. that's not a reason not to do it. Nope. But if if your only goal is to make money, well, man, there's so many other things you should be doing. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, quicker, easier, more efficient ways to make money. Yeah, yeah. When I do an event of any kind, or if I, even if I go present, my my outcome, my desired outcome is to participate or create a community. Experience, right? Where like minded people can geek out together, can motivate each other, you know, um, perform in some way, uh, mentally or physically. And I I don't know, I do get a lot of um, satisfaction out of that, like participating either as a coordinator or just as one of the players involved in providing that sense of community uh, to an otherwise often scattered group of people who don't have it. You know, there's something to be said for that. You change people's lives like that sometimes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think especially in the future, having any type of experience, whether that's a a one hour talk, a one day event, two day event, you know, like I was in Costa Rica for two weeks down there. Yeah. You know, I think any varying degree of that, I think is going to become more and more important because I think that's the only way you're really going to be able to show people what is different. By pulling them out of their normal environment and dropping them somewhere else or you know, they drop off at fills and see, you know, people moving huge loads, they're like, Wow, I can lift more you know, or yeah. go somewhere else and have a different experience. I think those things are gonna become more and more valuable.
1: Yeah.
0: In fact, I had this conversation just the other day about that's how universities are going to have to exist. Like smaller private schools yes. like where I work, if everything is too online, you've lost that simply yep. show up face-to-face sense of community where, you know, even with, uh, I don't want to say dress codes, but professional dress. Why do we talk about some of these things? Why do I bitch and moan in my old man mode about, you know, I see kids in short shorts and bare feet wiggling their toes at a Nobel laureate with their feet up on the chair in front of them. And you're like, <laughs> don't do that. Like, this, is, this should mean more than that to you, you know. And coming together in a respectful way to do something legitimate, I, I think is is just important. But uh, so yeah. I didn't get to, to ask you, Mike, what about your ultimate outcome? If you're going to present data, whether it's your own or you do review of other people's work or or whatever that you're going to do, a tutorial. Uh, what's your ultimate outcome? Because y- you do this a lot. Yeah, I mean, my ultimate outcome is
2: usually two things. So one, I try to present stuff that is a little bit different, but yet similar to things that they've heard about, Uh, right? So a lot of metabolic flexibility may be still a new term to some people, but yet we're talking about fat metabolism, carbohydrate metabolism. Uh, The talk I did in Costa Rica was an extension of that into physiologic flexibility, right? So now if we look at uh, temperature regulation, pH regulation, things of that nature, so try to present something that is hopefully accurate based on the research we have, you know, based on you know some experimentation, even if that's a n of one or animal studies, as long as they're clearly stated. And then what are the framework? And then what are the action items that they can do? So if we can't really give them an answer, quote unquote, maybe we can give them a framework of which they can kind of find their own answer. So they can go out and experiment in a way to get an answer. So I try to make things, which I got this from TC actually at TMEG, make things that are more actionable because, yeah, I want people to have better information. I want them to be more educated. You know, but at the end of the day, I think it's the action part that actually moves the needle. So if you can do something that gives them enough kind of rationale and background and kind of gets them a little bit excited, and then the action items for them to go out and actually – do those things. uh, To me, I think that's going to be the most impactful. And that's what I enjoy doing the most.
0: I like that a lot. Yeah. Giving people the motivation and the tools to think straight. (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's an old Sagan term. (laughs) The tools to think straight. And that's not derogatory. Right. But no, no. It's, you know, the, uh, the glossary of here are the terms that you should be looking at or that you might want to disagree with and move in a different direction. But it's that Yeah, I mean, even in a classroom, I might have somebody 30 times, but if I can motivate them to go regularly read on these topics, or you know, uh, explore, and and, and invest themselves, and and investigate themselves, and uh, that's that's a job better done, I think.
2: Yeah, because I think just information is not super useful anymore, right? I mean, kids can look up almost any information they want, and yes, there's some Basics you're going to have to memorize that you should know off the top of your head, 100% agree. But as information becomes more and more prevalent, what I see lacking, especially in students, is the ability to synthesize anything into a reasonable argument or framework. And I think that's the skill that's going to be the most useful to solve the bigger problems. So all the easy problems have kind of been solved already. And whether you work for someone, whether you're a fitness professional, or you do a different job. In essence, you're going to have to take a bunch of other information and put it into something that you think is a workable framework and then test it to see if you're right. Right. But I think that, that synthesis part is what's severely missing right now.
0: Well, It's just higher on like Bloom's taxonomy, right? Like, yes. Critique, totally. critique and synthesis are way above simple awareness, right? Things like, oh, yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah so I, I, agree. I agree. All right. Cool stuff, guys. I'm actually gonna, yeah. I'm gonna go lift here. So, there you nice. go. I'm headed.
1: have a, have a nice. good weekend.
2: Yeah. All right. See you guys
1: later.
0: Hey, listeners.